0: Conversations on healthcare. I'm Mark Masella.
1: And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well, Margaret,
0: quite a powerful announcement from the White House. At the beginning of his final year in office, President Obama announced plans to tackle America's gun violence epidemic by announcing a number of measures that would make it tougher to buy guns without a background check.
1: And the president was flanked by a number of parents who lost children to the Sandy Hook Massacre It was a powerful testament to the scope of gun violence in this country and the tragic toll it takes. Roughly 33,000 Americans killed by guns every year. And as the president said, we can no longer accept this as the status quo.
0: It's such a serious public health crisis, Margaret. Statistics show that when guns are present in the home, the likelihood of injury or death goes up significantly. For instance, in domestic violence situations, people are 12 times more likely to be killed if there's a gun in the home. It debunks the notion of keeping a gun for protection. In fact, the data shows quite the opposite.
1: Well, the president is seeking primarily to make background checks a mandatory aspect of all gun purchases. And he also wants to increase the FBI's roster of personnel who carry out these background checks, really trying to make the process more streamlined and more efficient.
0: And he also calls on gun manufacturers to be more inventive in designing better safety features on guns. Many of the nation's gun deaths are actually accidental, and all too often these gun incidents involve children. It's an avoidable tragedy that needs to be addressed. Yeah.
1: <laughs> And I note the president also touched on the need to enhance the nation's behavioral health system. Suicides account for two-thirds of the nation's annual gun deaths, and we know from statistics, again, when there's a gun in the house, a person is far more likely to carry through with suicide. Also, a clear factor behind cases such as the Sandy Hook massacre. So we are pleased to hear the president promising more resources for behavioral health services, and that is something our guest today is very knowledgeable about.
0: Kana Enomoto is the acting administrator of SAMHSA, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Service Administration, the branch of HHS, which is responsible for improving access to care for those most in need of mental health and addiction services. She's going to share with us some of the agency's new directives that have come from the White House, including expanding access to treatment options for those who are suffering.
1: And Lori Robertson will check in, the managing editor of factcheck.org. She is always on the hunt for misstatements spoken about health policy in the public domain. And no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by going to chcradio.com.
0: And as always, if you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com. Or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We love hearing from you.
1: We'll get to our interview with Kana Enomoto in just a moment.
0: But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's headline news.
2: I'm Mariano O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. The president's proposal to increase restrictions on gun purchases to those who can pass a background check as drawn, as expected, ire from gun rights supporters, Republicans such as House Speaker Paul Ryan calling the measure overreach. But the president said that 33,000 annual gun deaths in America must be addressed, and Americans apparently agree. 70 percent of those polled felt stricter gun laws were a necessary route to curbing gun violence. And the president was justified in overriding Congress with an executive action on the matter. Public health officials have been marking for some time the effect of overuse of antibiotics, saying it's led to a dramatic rise in antibiotic-resistant strains of bacteria. Now there's concern about overuse of CT scans, 85 million of which occur in a given year. And experts warn there's a real risk of overexposure to radiation from so much testing. Like x-rays and PET scans, CT scans use ionizing radiation, which can damage DNA and cause cancer. Though an essential diagnostic tool, the FDA reports an estimated 30 to 50 percent of imaging tests are believed to be medically unnecessary. Kids and nutrition. Thanks to a law passed in 2012, kids are getting more nutrition out of their school lunches. The Healthy Hunger-Free Act mandated more whole grains, fruits and vegetables in school lunches served across the country, as well as a reduction of fat and calories. According to one study, the measure is working. The study, recently published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, Pediatrics, shows in just a few short years, there's been a dramatic jump in the nutritional value of the school lunch. Tracking school meals across a number of schools in Washington state, the study showed before the law passed the meals had about 58 percent of the six essential nutrients required for a balanced meal. Within a year after the law went into effect, that percentage jumped to almost 80 percent. And more attention is being paid to the importance of the brain-gut connection as it pertains to overall health and well-being, mental health as well as physical. And when it comes to the difficult-to-treat irritable bowel syndrome, psychotherapy may have a lasting impact. In a recently published study spanning 41 clinical trials, those suffering from irritable bowel syndrome who received psychotherapy showed a marked improvement in holding symptoms at bay, about 75% improved. And the effects lasted for up to a year after therapy ended. Those in the control groups who did not receive psychotherapy fared worse in their prevalence of IBS symptoms. IBS affects an estimated 11 percent of the population, and there are few effective treatments on the market. Researchers say it's a promising avenue to pursue, drug-free as well as long-lasting. I'm Ariadne O'Hare with these Healthcare Headlines.
0: We're speaking today with Kana Enomoto, acting administrator of the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Service Administration, an agency within the Department of Health and Human Services which seeks to advance the behavioral health of the nation. Previously, Ms. Enomoto served as both deputy administrator as well as the director of the Office of Policy, Planning, and Innovation at SAMHSA. She has served as senior advisor to three previous SAMHSA administrators and began her career there in 1998 as a Presidential Management Fellow. She earned her master's in clinical psychology from UCLA and is a graduate of the Senior Managers in Government program at Harvard's Kennedy School. Administrator Ana welcome to Conversation on Healthcare.
3: Thank you so much, Mark and Margaret.
0: You know, I don't know if Americans realize how large the mental health needs of this country are, but it's, it's estimated that one in four Americans will experience some form of mental illness, and most of whom uh, receive little or no care. But has really played a key role in addressing mental health and addiction issues at the national level, and, and you're not alone in this. And I wonder if you could talk to our listeners about the role SAMHSA is playing in this uh, arena and how your mission relates to the activities of HHS, CDC, and how SAMHSA is focused on helping to fill the mental health gap in the American healthcare system.
3: Sure. So SAMHSA is an operating division of the Department of Health and Human Services. So we are a sister agency to CDC, FDA, NIH, and we work across the department to help lead on behavioral health issues. And so the secretary has tasked us with making sure that all of HHS's investments in this area are aligned and focused on providing impact for the American people. SAMHSA in particular, uh, we're a relatively small agency, $3.6 billion. Block Grants being the primary source of investment. But SAMHSA has a number of roles that people don't know about. Uh, We provide leadership and voice on behavioral health issues, both within the Department of HHS, across the administration, working closely with DOD, VA, justice, education, and so on, but also for the nation with our position pieces and our analyses and data. So we do a lot of surveillance. We um, fund the largest uh, household survey uh, in the country, and it's on Mm -hmm. drug use and health, and and we do a a great deal of other data work through our statistical unit. Uh, We support public awareness uh, activities to support prevention, treatment, and recovery with Right Now, a great campaign uh, that you'll see in bus stations and airports and all over called Talk They Hear You. Uh, which is encouraging parents to talk to their children about underage drinking because we know that parents mm-hmm. make the biggest difference in, in their kids' lives. Uh, we also do practice improvement uh, for uh, folks who are already in the field, so through our technical assistance centers and other materials for providers in the broader behavioral health field. Um, and we do standard setting uh, in a number of, of areas. Uh, workplace drug testing is, is um uh, an important one, medication-assisted treatment, uh, as well as privacy protections for people and treatment for substance use disorders in particular. As a central point of coordination and leadership, uh, we're really thrilled that the nation is showing so much interest in these issues. Mm-hmm. As we're as we're trying to get the latest research and evidence from NIH into the field and collaborating with CDC to get it to be common uh, public health practice, or to leverage all of the investments that they're making in in public health, for example, on suicide or uh, looking at opioid misuse and overdose, we think we are positioned really well to uh, make an impact for the nation.
1: Well, Connie, I was thinking as you spoke that virtually everything you said is front-page news across the country in terms of uh, issues of paramount concern to Americans right now. And I want to talk a little bit about the, the mental health side of the the work that you're doing. We A couple of years ago, had Congressman Patrick Kennedy on our show, and he was stressing the importance of the mental health parity laws. Now, we still find something of a chasm between the patients who are within a sometimes fragmented health care system and getting access to the behavioral health care that they need maybe you could describe some of the biggest challenges that you see for patients and providers attempting to make sure that people who need it have access to both behavioral health and addiction services and how the enhancement of the Mental Health Parity Act has or hasn't addressed that challenge. That's such a good point, Margaret, right? Under ACA and Mental Health
3: Parity and Addictions Equity Act, about 62 million people have increased access or coverage at parity to insurance coverage for behavioral health services. So we're thrilled at that potential, but you're absolutely right. It is potential, and we have to make sure insurers and purchasers have the facts um, so they know what parity really means uh, for them. And, you know, health insurance and coverage are complicated, and so many people have difficulty understanding the benefits uh, to which they're entitled. Um, And it's really important for people who think they might not be getting coverage that they deserve, under parity, to contact their state health insurance commissioners or the Department of Labor, which um, there is a toll-free number. You can look it up online uh, if you have parity uh, questions or concerns about implementation. They're also on the SAMHSA website. Uh, For us at SAMHSA, we've been very, very invested in parity implementation and doing everything we can to make sure that that's happening. Uh, We've met with stakeholders pretty recently from outside organizations as well as other federal agencies to get feedback on what needs to get done, what the gaps are, and we're continually engaging with our stakeholders to look for opportunities to support implementation of parity protections. We know that um, in some states, uh, state's attorney generals and insurance commissioners are getting together to have these conversations because it is largely uh, going to be a state issue at the at the point of enforcement, but clearly to the degree we can facilitate people having the right information up front, uh, we want to do that.
0: You know, Connor I want to Uh, talk a little bit about the the budget and I know, uh, the President and the Secretary have uh, have great faith in SAMHSA and certainly uh, have uh, wanted to give additional resources i don 't know how you ended up in the, the final budget reconciliation, but I think our our listeners would be interested in that and then you know there are four key areas that your organization is addressing uh, strengthening the crisis system, combating opioid abuse and over prescribing building a stronger behavioral health workforce, and increased attention uh, on tribal health issues so uh, could you start off uh, talking about this uh, first initiative, strengthening the uh, crisis system and the initiatives that SAMHSA has underway?
3: Well, I have to tell you, we are plus $160 million. Uh, last time that I checked for the Ye- omnibus.
0: Yeehaw. That's great.
3: <laughs> we are um, just bursting with excite gratitude uh, to our colleagues on the Hill for seeing the need to invest um, strongly in, in mental health and substance abuse. Uh, on, on the crisis front, you know, uh, it, it's, it's in the headlines um, all too frequently, people mm-hmm. having psychiatric emergencies, um, people overdosing, people getting boarded in hospital emergency rooms. We know that, that no one is doing it on purpose, but in fact, we need to help the multiple systems who deal with people uh, experiencing a behavioral health crisis to coordinate and collaborate and communicate with one another. Whether that's law enforcement, whether that's emergency care, whether that's um, the mental health department, it's very easy for folks to fall through the cracks. And we have seen some communities that have designed crisis um, systems that are uh, more seamless, have a better data sharing, and collaboration so that they can stabilize individuals in psychological distress, engage them in the most appropriate course of treatment, whether that's inpatient or outpatient, and then get get people uh, to be supported in their own communities with the right continuum of services so that not only can we de-escalate the, the immediate crisis but prevent future crises down the line.
1: Well, Kenneth, let me uh, take a look then at the, the next issue, the issue of opioid addiction. We had Dr. Tom Frieden of the CDC uh, on the show not long ago, and he spelled it out, 250 million opioid prescriptions prescribed by medical professionals in the past decade alone, 150,000 deaths from overdoses. And we have so many initiatives now, from Narcan to expanding prescribers of medicated medication-assisted therapy to stronger monitoring of both patients and prescribers. Maybe you could just tell us everything in a nutshell that you're doing to target the issue of opioid addiction and overdoses at SAMHSA?
3: Well, so FY 2016 budget has great news for us. We already have, I think, 12 states with targeted capacity expansion for prescription drug overdose and addiction treatment. We are going to be adding to that list of states this year with we're trying to get funds to the states with the highest rates of inpatient admissions and overdose. Uh, We're also seeing money being added to the block grants, and SAMHSA has sent out dear commissioner letters or dear SSA letters to let folks know that they can use their funds for medication-assisted treatment, for example. We also have new money for naloxone distribution and Mm -hmm. uh, public education for first responders. Um, as well as, uh, and we're very thrilled to see this, a uh, strategic prevention framework, RX we call it, to increase awareness of uh, the potential for opioid misuse, abuse, and dependence. So we're trying to tackle this issue at every point of the continuum, both from all the way from you know primary prevention to recovery support, uh, or to um, fatality prevention. So I think it is a sign of both the administration and the Congress coming mm-hmm. together that this is a huge issue. More people dying from this than from um, diabetes, for example. Um, you, you know, this is a big, big, big issue, and uh, I think uh, where Americans are really waking up mm-hmm. to it, and and um, SAMHSA's part of the Secretary's Opioid Initiative.
0: We're speaking today with Kana Anamoto, Acting Administrator of the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Service Administration, which seeks to advance the behavioral health of the nation. Ms. Anamoto served as both Deputy Administrator as well as the Director of the Office of Policy, Planning, and Innovation at SAMHSA as well. And you know, innovation has been uh, something that we've tried to highlight here on the show. We've had Farsad uh, Mustashari and Brian Civic and, and others talking about the work that they're doing and the transformations that are going on. And you served uh, in the innovation role at SAMHSA. And uh, maybe uh, talk to our listeners about the kinds of innovation in care delivery and treatment options that you see on the horizon what might facilitate uh, the quest to deliver more efficient, effective, and elegant health care to those in need and and how are the newer therapies supported by telehealth helping to achieve better outcomes and maybe tell us uh, about some promising innovations in, in behavioral health delivery you see emerging?
3: well, I think there's stuff that you guys are doing at CHc which are, are really on the cutting edge, uh, one of the things that're Excited about our sort of these collaborative practice models. Um, so, in addition to telehealth, which which we know is a good thing, and and we should be doing more of it. But I think there are also uh, technological requirements for that. Mm-hmm. Legal issues around that. When we have you know a specialty provider in one city, if they're doing telehealth, they can reach people in other places. But they can only reach as many people as that they can reach as a person. And with some of these collaborative practice models, like Project Echo. Where we can have the specialist providing mentorship and instruction to the non-specialist, and mm-hmm. uh, we think we can expand uh, reach of the uh, the kind of quality of care that we need to um, exponentially. And we're very excited about looking at that as it expands into behavioral health, both for cutting-edge interventions as well as some pretty traditional evidence-based interventions which still haven't gotten the reach um, that they need, and and I think could benefit clinicians could benefit from more support.
1: Kind of, as we look at the uh, unmet needs in behavioral health or any aspect of healthcare, we always end up uh, asking the question about workforce: uh, who are the people that will help provide uh, these services? What kind of training do they need? I know the twenty sixteen SAMHSA budget had outlined some specific goals for the behavioral health workforce, making training more accessible, maybe more affordable. And also, of course, there's always the question of making sure that the content of training and and also the clinical practical experience is being revised to reflect current needs. What's the role of SAMHSA relative to those efforts?
3: You know, we've in recent years uh, invested pretty significantly in behavioral health workforce in partnership with HRSA, and HRSA, who's also investing through the National Health Service Corps, where about one-third of the providers are uh, from a behavioral health specialty. So I think HHS recognizes the need that um, behavioral health is is certainly a growth area and a shortage set of specialties. I think in the new omnibus, uh, it looks like there's an additional $15 million for behavioral health workforce, which is to include both our minority fellows as well as master's level social workers, psychologists, counselors, MFTs, uh, and paraprofessionals. So I think that's a, a great asset uh, to the field that we can look forward to expanding our capacity, especially as our professionals are looking at the graying of the behavioral health workforce as well. As, and as we move into more integrated health systems, it's going to be important to build behavioral health capacity among, and we had this conversation, I think, at the When we're on the panel, but what I call allied health professionals is includes uh, doctors, nurses, and everyone who's not a behavioral health specialist. you know, you're our allies. And so we need to uh, leverage all of those who are engaged in primary care as well as specialty care, because we know behavioral health issues have implications across the board. Absolutely.
0: Well, engaging everyone in primary care, certainly from the community health center world, we know you've worked well with community health center model, and we're really behavioral health and dental, we're closely integrated. You know, this whole concept that uh, you have a behavioralist alongside with a primary care provider. And I know SAMHSA has been working on uh, bringing primary care to some of the behavioral health groups. And talk to our listeners more about the, the types of models, this whole notion that primary care should be integrated and uh, behavioralist should be somebody that kids see as much as they see a pediatrician. It's part of a, someone's daily life. It, it, it's not an exception.
3: Absolutely. I mean, that is the sort of fundamental to SAMHSA's vision, is that behavioral health is essential to health. And behavioral health should be part of people's health care from early childhood up into, you know, being a senior citizen. Uh, We need to embed uh, the understanding of mental health and substance abuse issues for all of our primary care partners. As well as specialty care because as we know, the management of conditions like diabetes and breast cancer and hypertension are all affected Mm -hmm. by an individual's mental health, whether they have, you know, they are symptomatic and and that has an impact in their ability to adhere to whatever treatment protocols they have. We have a couple of initiatives in this space, a primary behavioral health care integration program where we're bringing primary care into specialty mental health services because we know people with mental illnesses are. Very vulnerable to other chronic health conditions, and so their different studies uh, show that people die. People with schizophrenia may die up to 28 years earlier. And on the other side, we're just uh, awarded 24 grants to states who applied for planning grants for the demonstration program for certified community behavioral clinics, also known as the Excellence Act, And, Mm -hmm. and that gives an opportunity to community. Uh, behavioral health centers to get uh, reimbursed in the same way using uh, as uh, community health centers. uh, Another opportunity for collaboration and connection.
1: Well, Kana, we know that one uh, thing that has been a big problem over the years and a deterrent to treatment often has been stigma or the fear of stigma. And I'd like to give you an opportunity to talk about a new effort that you've launched, The Science of Changing Social Norms, which I think has as an end goal reducing stigma. Tell us about that
3: project that we've designed to examine effective strategies for not only increasing public awareness, but as it says, changing social norms, because uh, people have negative perceptions and attitudes about mental illness and substance use problems, um, and they also don't necessarily see, as we just talked about, see behavioral health as a health priority or as a public health priority. And so, you know, raising public awareness is is a first step. Reducing negative attitudes is is a second step. But then uh, we need to get people over the finish line to to sort of changing their value set uh, such that um, if you have a child that's depressed or anxious, you treat it as seriously as if your child has a fever or an injury. Uh, we, we don't necessarily have that approach right now for behavioral health conditions, and I don't think it's because people are ill-intentioned. I think it's just that that's not um, the norm in our society, and we need to use data. We've worked, we're working with the National Academy of Sciences to say, how have they done this in other countries? How have they done mm-hmm. this in certain communities? What did the data tell us are the very best approaches uh, and how might we invest our time, our energy, our resources um, so that we can also move the needle?
0: We've been speaking today with Kana Anamoto, acting administrator of the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Service Administration, which seeks to advance the behavioral health of the nation. You can learn more about their work by going to SAMHSA, S-A-M-H-S-A dot gov. Kana, thank you so much for joining us today on Conversations on Healthcare.
3: Thank you so much. It's been a great, great conversation.
0: Conversations on healthcare. We want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award winning journalist and managing editor of factcheck.org, a nonpartisan, Nonprofit consumer advocate For voters that aim to reduce the Level of deception in U.S. politics Laurie, what have you got for us this week?
4: Have drug prices doubled in the Last seven years? That's what a Hillary Clinton TV ad airing in Iowa Claims. But a report provided By her campaign says brand Name drug prices on average Have more than doubled. Not all Drug prices. And more than 80% Of filled prescriptions are generic Those prices have declined 62%. The same report says. In fact, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services says in its latest National Health Expenditure Report that the shift to cheaper generic drugs is responsible for historically low rates in prescription drug spending growth. The Clinton camp points to a report by Express Scripts, one of the nation's largest pharmacy benefits manager, which found a 127 percent increase in brand name drugs from January 2008 through December 2014. But generic prices, the report shows, have dropped by more than half. The report doesn't give a figure for how much overall drug prices have changed, and a spokeswoman told us that the organization doesn't have such a figure. We also consulted Glenn T. Schumach with the University of Illinois at Chicago, who has written extensively about drug costs. He, too, knew of no data that could conclusively answer the question of how much consumer drug prices have increased. He also noted that even when individual drug prices rise, consumers don't necessarily pay that price, because most have insurance insurance with set co-pays or cost sharing. Clinton ad mentions specific conditions including heart disease, asthma, and diabetes. The Express Scripts report does have data on drugs used to treat those conditions. It shows year over year price increases for the top ten traditional therapy classes that combine both generic and brand name drugs diabetes was the only one that saw a price increase in 2014, an increase of 18%, while drug costs for asthma declined 14.9%, and those for heart disease declined 12.6%. And that's my Fact Check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, Managing Editor of FactCheck.org.
1: FactCheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, Email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare.
0: Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. For all the people in the world without limbs, acquiring prosthetics can be costly and out of reach. It's especially challenging to make prosthetics for children since they are in constant state of growth. Rochester Institute of Technology Scientist Dr. John Shull stumbled upon a clever and affordable solution provided online open source templates to anyone anywhere in the world who has access to a 3D printer, and provide prosthetic hands for next to nothing.
5: I've made this Google Maps mashup. Um, If you have a 3D printer and you'd like to help, put yourself on this map. And if you know someone who needs a hand, put yourself on this map and buy something like this got going.
0: So he founded the Enable Network, which has massed thousands of volunteer makers in upwards of 40 countries around the world, providing cheap but functional prosthetics for children in need.
5: I think we're currently pushing 5,800 identified members in our Google Plus community. And we have followings in the, in the thousands more. We know that we've delivered about 800 hands devices. And we suspect that this comparable number have been downloaded by people we can't track because we put all of our design on the internet.
0: The movement has grown so rapidly, the simple limb designs have become more sophisticated as recipients of the prosthetic devices provide feedback for designers to make more efficient devices.
5: We're still working on opposable thumbs we're still working on individual finger movements these things grip or ungrip that's all they do so they're much less functional than a biological hand and they're also less functional than a fancy myoelectric hand. but for kids it's it's huge because those expensive devices are typically out of reach for children who would outgrow them. So it doesn't make sense for them to get a five or $10,000 hand. And they look like superhero Iron Man hands. And for that very reason, they're very popular with kids.
0: Enable, a global collaborative network of open source designs linking to makers with 3D printers to provide low-cost prosthetic limbs to children and adults around the world. Now that's a bright idea.
2: This is
1: Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter.
0: And I'm Mark Maselli.
1: Peace and health.
2: Conversations on Healthcare, broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University. Streaming live at WESUFM.org and brought to you by the Community Health Center.